please remain standing for the reading of God's word. My sermon text today, taken from uh, Paul's second letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 10 through 17. We take a little break from our foundations series where we're considering foundations of the of our uh, most holy faith with the Apostles' Creed as our guideline, a Bible-based study in that. But as Reformation Day is, is approaching and we're in this season where we remember that mighty move of God uh, through uh, Martin Luther and Calvin and other reformers, we consider one of the important doctrines, one of the foundational doctrines of the Protestant Reformation, the doctrine of Scripture alone. So let us hear God's word, Second Timothy chapter 3. Verses 10 through 17. Paul writes to Timothy, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Dear friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our God endures forever. Let's pray for God's blessing upon the preaching of His Word. Gracious Lord and Father in heaven, We beseech you to open our minds and our hearts to behold wondrous things from your word. We pray that by the illuminating power of your spirit, you would help us to understand and grasp that which the spirit is speaking to us in this portion of your God breathed, inerrant, infallible word. We thank you for the scriptures. They are indeed a light unto our feet, a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path and a guide to our way. We ask, Heavenly Father, that as we consider this passage, passage of scripture, that your word would find a lodging place in our souls and grant me the grace to speak forth your word with clarity and power and with the assistance of your spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name and all of God's people said. Amen. Congregation, you may be seated. Well, friends, as you can see uh, from your... A bulletin in your sermon outline, if you're following along, the title of my sermon this morning is The Doctrine of Scripture Alone. And uh, four key words that the children, children of all ages can listen for if you find that helpful. The words scripture, authority, inspiration and sufficiency. Well, dear ones, we in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, we are Protestant Christians And as a church, we are a, in spite of our church's name, which includes the word orthodox, in spite of that, we are a Protestant church. What exactly does it mean to be a Protestant? Think about the term itself. Obviously, the term itself conveys the idea of protesting against something. 
The Protestant reformers and their followers indeed protested against various corrupt and unbiblical doctrines and practices that were found in the medieval Roman Catholic Church. Practices such as its doctrine of the Mass, indulgences, relics, and so forth. But friends, the term Protestant can actually be a misleading term because it can give the impression that Protestants are only against something. Uh, We are Protestants, so the question is, what are you protesting? What are you against? And certainly we are against certain things. But Protestantism not only stands against the false teachings and practices of Rome, of the Roman Church, although it certainly does that. More importantly, Protestantism, historic, biblically grounded Protestantism, also stands for some very important things. It stands for the pure truth of God's word, and it stands for the biblical gospel, the good news of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from works of the law. The foundational truths of the Protestant Reformation are the solas or the onlys of the Reformation, and they include sola scriptura or scripture alone. They include also sola fide, faith alone, sola gratia, grace alone, solus Christus, Christ alone, and soli deo gloria, to God alone be the glory. Well, friends, this Lord's Day morning, I want to have us consider the biblical basis for the historic Protestant doctrine of sola scriptura. Now, when we come to the issue of Scripture alone or sola scriptura versus Scripture plus something else, whatever that something else may be, whether that be holy tradition or religious experience or alleged new revelations of the Spirit or or current cultural uh, views on, on things, whatever it might be, this issue between Scripture alone versus Scripture plus something else, what is it at heart? Well, it's an issue that arises out of such questions as, what is our ultimate religious authority? And where can we find God's clear word revelation? What is the ultimate standard, not only in our private Christian lives, but also the ultimate and final final standard for Christ's church? Now, friends, historically, the Roman Catholic Church has answered these questions by basically saying that, well, the ultimate authority is sacred scripture, And holy tradition, as infallibly interpreted by the magisterium of the church, headed by the Pope in Rome, that is viewed by them as the final authority. So it's typical to think of the differences as, you know, Scripture alone versus Scripture plus tradition. But actually, when you take the Roman view to its logical end, what you end up with ultimately is what has been called sola ecclesia. In other words, the church alone. Because after all, in the Roman view of things, it is the church that decides what is and what is not God's word. It is the church that decides what is and what is not authoritative holy tradition. It is the church and the church alone which defines uh, what are uh, dogmas binding upon the consciences of the faithful. So that is the Roman view, whereas historically Protestant churches, whether they be Lutheran, Reformed, Anglican, Baptist, or what have you, have affirmed that the Bible alone is the only infallible rule of faith and practice in Christ's church. And so when, when there are issues of doctrine or issues of ethics 
uh, in the church, the final standard that we go to and appeal to is nothing less than God's inerrant, infallible, authoritative word. We go to the Bibles. But friends, here's where, if you've ever had a conversation with, with an educated Roman Catholic, with a Roman Catholic who knows their faith well and knows their reasons for believing their views, educated Roman Catholics and Catholic apologists uh, will often challenge the Protestant view of sola scriptura or scripture alone by claiming that the Bible nowhere teaches it. If you're ever in a conversation with a Roman Catholic who knows what their church teaches, and there are some of those out there, uh, they will often say, well, where does the Bible teach sola scriptura? You're, you're kind of reading that into the Bible, they would say. You're, the, the Bible itself doesn't teach sola scriptura. How would you answer that uh, objection? How would you interact with someone who is bringing that claim to you? And it is a, is a claim that has uh, convinced some folks to uh, swim the Tiber, to, to join uh, Rome, some from the Protestant fold. Well, friends, as I hope to show today, passages such as the one that we are considering today clearly imply the truth which we Protestants call sola scriptura. Now, as we uh, approach this text of scripture, I need to give credit where credit is due. In my preparations of this sermon, I need to credit uh, Dr. James White's excellent little book entitled Scripture Alone, Exploring the Bible's Accuracy, Authority and Authenticity. Uh, I use that resource uh, for the basic outline of my sermon points. It's not the only resource I, I uh, consulted, but I found uh, Dr. White's book on this subject uh, very help, helpful. So I just want to give credit where credit is due. Well, let's consider the context of our passage for today. Second Timothy is a very significant uh, portion of Scripture, a very significant letter uh, of Paul's. Paul wrote Second Timothy uh, to Timothy, his son in the faith, towards the end of Paul's life. In fact, 2 Timothy is Paul's last epistle before his martyrdom, at least his last canonical epistle that we are aware of before he was martyred. And Paul writes to Timothy, his son in the faith. Paul had actually mentored Timothy as a gospel minister. And so here is Paul writing to his uh, his intern, if you will, the one that he had mentored, in order to encourage Timothy. And why did Timothy need encouragement? Timothy, we get the impression from the scriptures that Timothy was a somewhat had somewhat of a timid personality. So Paul had to encourage him not to be timid, but to be bold in the Lord. And at this particular time, Timothy was facing a very uh, serious pastoral challenge. Timothy uh, was serving as a pastor in the church of Ephesus, a church which at the time was facing many problems from false teachers. So Paul writes to encourage Timothy to stand fast for the faith against these false teachers. He is encouraging Timothy in his pastoral ministry. Now, again, it's always important when we study the scriptures and interpret them to understand their, their context. And uh, in the context of this passage, uh, in the first nine verses of uh, chapter three, what Paul does is he describes the character, the tactics and the attacks of these false teachers. In fact, let me just read the first nine verses of Second Timothy chapter three. 
Paul writes to Timothy, he says, but understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Again, as Paul writes this, he very likely has in the background of his mind these false teachers that threatened the church where Timothy had pastoral oversight. And Paul says, he goes on to say, avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins, and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith, but they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. And so, friends, these are the kinds of folks that, that timid Timothy is having to contend with and deal with. Well, then in verses 10 to 15, Paul goes on to encourage Timothy, as I said, to stay faithful in spite of opposition and persecution. He says in verse 10, you, however, you, Timothy, you have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured yet from them all. The Lord rescued me. Here again, Paul is speaking. Paul, as the mentor of Timothy, is speaking to Timothy, reminding Timothy of his, of his modeling of a faithful life in Christ in his apostolic ministry. Again, Paul did not, obviously, he's not claiming to be sinless, but he's saying, Timothy, you know me. You've, you've observed my life. You've seen all of these aspects uh, of my ministry. And he's trying to encourage his son in the faith to, to follow his example insofar as he followed Christ's example. And then he goes on to say in verse 12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Again, this is a general statement. This does not mean that if you're not at this moment suffering overt persecution, then you must be ungodly or something of that sort. But uh, if you study church history, and even if you look at the... Uh, the, the uh, Church today, throughout the world, uh, the norm for Christ's church throughout the ages of church history, the norm for the faithful church of Christ has been suffering persecution uh, for the sake of the gospel. And he goes on to say uh, that uh, all who would live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being Deceived Again, he probably has in the background of his mind these false teachers that Timothy is having to contend with. But then again, he brings this encouragement. Look at verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. From whom did he learn? From whom did Timothy learn his faith? considering from whom you learned it. Timothy must continue in the sound doctrine that he had learned. Let's go back and look at chapter 1, verse 5, very briefly. 
chapter 1, verse 5, Paul says to Timothy, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you. These godly women in his life, a godly grandmother, a godly mother. Apparently, Timothy's father was a pagan, an unbeliever. But nonetheless, Timothy learned the faith from his mother, Eunice, his grandmother, Lois. And as it goes on to say in our passage for today, in verse 15, Paul reminds Timothy that from childhood, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings or the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation by faith, through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, let me ask you, at this particular point in time in redemptive history, what are the sacred writings at this point in redemptive history? This would refer to the Old Testament. At this point in time, the New Testament scriptures were uh, not completed. They were in the process of being written. And so, uh, even the Old Testament scriptures are sufficient and able to make us wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Why? Because all of Scripture centers on Christ, points to Christ. The Old Testament prepares us for the coming of the Messiah, Jesus, and the New Testament reveals Christ. But in any case, Timothy had been acquainted uh, with the Scriptures from his childhood as, as he had been taught of the scriptures from his godly grandmother and godly mother. Notice, by the way, the function of these scriptures. What is their function? Their function is to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The scriptures are primarily concerned with making us wise unto salvation, not uh, serving as chicken soup for our souls or serving as marching orders in, in culture wars, but serving a spiritual function of making us wise for salvation in Christ Jesus. And then, getting to our the specifics of our passage for today, he goes on to say these familiar but glorious words. All Scripture is breathed out by God. Some of your translations say inspired, but breathed out is actually, as we'll see, more literal and correct. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Now, this brings me to the first point of application I want to make uh, today. Let us, first of all, brothers and sisters, consider the origin of Holy Scripture. Its origin is that it is breathed out by God. The origin of Holy Scripture. It is breathed out by God. Breathed out by God. What's breathed out by God? How many of the Scriptures are breathed out by God? Just the parts of Scripture that that we resonate with or that we like or that we enjoy. I mean, you know, there are certain portions of Scripture that, uh, to be honest, there are certain portions of Scripture that I appreciate and enjoy reading more than other portions of Scripture. It's all God's Word, but, you know, I love Paul, for example. I love the Gospels. I love the Psalms. But there's a whole lot of other uh, books of the Bible. Remember, the Bible is not just a book. It's a collection of of divinely inspired or breathed out books. But how many scriptures are inspired or breathed out? It says all or every scripture is God-breathed. In the Greek, that word for God-breathed is the word theopneustos. Theos means God. Pneuma means spirit or breath. 
And that's why God breathed is uh, probably the more accurate, uh, it is the more accurate translation. When you think of inspiration, inspiration sometimes carries with it the idea of God uh, putting something into the scriptures or breathing into the scriptures. But actually the scriptures are not breathed in by God, but breathed out by God. This points to their origin. This speaks to the divine origin of Scripture. Though the Scriptures were obviously and clearly penned by men, God sovereignly overruled their writing in such a way that they wrote precisely what God wanted them to write. Again, this is not the so-called mechanical or dictation theory, but that the Holy Spirit organically and supernaturally guided Uh, the writers of Scripture so that they wrote precisely what God wanted them to write. The ultimate divine author of Scripture and thus the originator of Scripture is God himself, not not the men uh, that he used. Although, again, the Scriptures were penned by men. The great uh, theologian, Presbyterian theologian, Dr. B.B. Warfield, the great defender of the inerrancy and authority of Holy Scripture, writes this about the Greek term theopneustos. He says, it does not express a breathing into the scriptures by God. What it affirms is that the scriptures owe their origin to an activity of God, the Holy Ghost, and are in the highest and truest sense his creation. It is on this foundation of divine origin that all the high attributes of scripture are built. And then Dr. James White says this about the scriptures. He says they are not first and foremost in a primary sense human in their origination. He goes on to say a solid view of the Bible begins with the recognition that God is its principal author, the origin and source of its very essence. This book that you hold in your hands, this is not man's word, although men were employed by God in writing it. This is ultimately God's word. It was breathed out by God. The contents of this book were breathed out by God. Dear ones, what does this have to do with sola scriptura or scripture alone? Well, friends, the Bible's function as the only infallible rule for faith and practice in Christ's church, the primary and highest and final standard to which we as God's people are to appeal. In other words, the truth of sola scriptura, scripture alone, necessarily arises out of the fact that the Bible has its origin in supernatural divine inspiration, in God's activity of breathing out His Word. Why should we Protestants believe in Scripture alone? Well, first of all, because the Bible alone has been breathed out by Almighty God as His inerrant, infallible, authoritative Word. Do you believe, dear listener, in the Bible's divine origin? There's plenty of internal evidence supporting that. Hundreds of times the Scriptures say things like, thus saith the Lord, or this is what the Lord says. And the New Testament Scriptures acknowledge, Jesus Himself acknowledged the final authority of the Scriptures And in the New Testament, the New Testament authors were aware of speaking under divine inspiration. So, do you believe in the Bible's divine origin? If you do not believe in the Bible's divine origin, you're not going to have a a clear understanding of Scripture and you don't understand uh, the purpose of the Scriptures. It comes from God and it is for uh, the people of God. And it is the very truth of God. But not only does... 
uh, Paul encouraged Timothy by reminding him of the origin of Holy Scripture. Next, he points out the profitability of Holy Scripture, not in terms of financial profit, but in terms of spiritual profit. He goes on to say in verse 16, he says, all Scripture is breathed out by God. That's the origin of Scripture. It comes from God. It is breathed out by God. And it is what? Profitable. Profitable for what? For teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Now, Paul says that all or every scripture is profitable. Profitable, that term profitable could also be translated as valuable, useful, or beneficial. What is God's word profitable, useful, valuable, beneficial for? Well, the first thing that is listed is for reproof. When you think of the term reprove or reproof, uh, what comes to mind? My suspicion is that that for many folks, something cruel and, and hard and harsh comes to mind. But this is a term that, yes, correction sometimes needs to be sharp and direct and blunt. But again, to quote from uh, Dr. White, he says that the scriptures are for reproof, that is for reproving slash refuting, can refer either to refuting false concepts slash teachings or to rebuking sinful actions slash attitudes. It probably carries with it both ideas as both are the responsibilities of those who minister in the church. Again, Paul is writing this to a fellow pastor. Uh, Paul obviously is more than just a pastor. He's an apostle. But he's writing to this man of God giving him instructions and he's saying, look, uh, the scriptures are, are profitable to for reproof. Uh, and reproving means correcting false teachings and correcting false living as well. And that brings me to the, ne- the, the next uh, statement. He says it is sufficient or, or rather, sorry, profitable for reproof for correction. Again, to quote from Dr. White, he says, for correction is found throughout Paul's letters, wherein he rebukes false living and false activity on the part of believers. Sound doctrine and sound living go hand in hand. An error in one normally leads to an error in the other. And Paul, speaking to the element of fault or error, also speaks to the restoration of the one being corrected. You see, in in the Scriptures, reproof and correction, are, while they may be blunt and direct at times, the, the motivation is not to crush people. The motivation is not to to knock people down. The motivation is to come alongside an erring brother or sister and to help them get back onto the straight and narrow path. The ultimate goal is restoration for the glory of Christ and for the good of his church. But not only does it have these, uh, if you will, these negative functions of, of reproving and correcting, Not only is it profitable for those negative activities, but also for training in righteousness. Training could also be translated as instruction or discipline. Again, to quote from Dr. White, he says, Training in righteousness follows for those who are learning to lay aside the old ways of the flesh and to walk in newness of life. He quotes, uh, he references Romans 6, 4. Hence, the entirety of the Christian ministry in life finds its origin, its foundation, its lifeblood in that which is God-breathed. Dear friends, 
The spiritual value and profitability of the Bible is a natural outgrowth of its divine origin as God-breathed Scripture. The Bible as the Word of God is the unique and ultimate source of spiritual profit, ultimately because the Bible reveals the Lord Jesus Christ and the full and free salvation that Christ offers uh, to us sinners in the Gospel. A salvation which we receive by faith in Christ and Christ alone. Again, going back to what Paul said at the end of verse 15, the Scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. You don't need the Scriptures plus something else to lead you to faith in Christ. The Spirit, faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ, we are told in the Scriptures. The Bible is also spiritually valuable and profitable because it shows the Christian believer how to grow in discipleship and how to live a life that is pleasing to the Lord. In other words, it is profitable for teaching, reproving, correcting, and training in righteousness, as we're told in verse 16. We not only need instruction in, in our sin and instruction in how to be saved, we also need instruction in how to live out the implications of our faith, how to live as disciples, as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Scriptures are sufficient for that as well. While the spiritual value and profitableness of Holy Scripture uh, are not in and of themselves proof of the truth of Scripture alone, they are certainly consistent with this truth. In other words, think about it, friends. If the Bible is indeed God-breathed Scripture, and it is, and therefore of supreme spiritual value and profitableness, which again it is, we would naturally expect it to function as our only infallible rule of Christian faith and Christian living, just as biblically Protestant Sola Scriptura teaches. Dear listener, again, do you see the spiritual value and profitableness of the Holy Scriptures? Of course, Pastor. I believe the Bible is God's Word. Very good. Make sure it doesn't stay on your shelf collecting dust. Be in the Word. Be in the Word. So we've seen the divine origin of Holy Scripture. We've considered the spiritual profitableness of Holy Scripture. It is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, training, or instruction in righteousness. But then we see in verse 17 the sufficiency of Holy Scripture. The sufficiency of Holy Scripture. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that what? The man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, in the context of this passage, this particular verse is a crowning evidence that supports the biblically Protestant doctrine of Scripture alone. So think about it. If Scripture is completely sufficient to thoroughly equip the man of God for every good work, as this passage clearly teaches, then why would Scripture need to be supplemented by other sources of religious authority as additional rules of faith and practice? Now, Paul says that that uh, that it is sufficient to equip whom? Well, he mentions in particular the man of God. 
and by the term man of God, he's, he's not speaking generically of, of believers in general, at least not in this context. He's thinking of, of church leaders in particular, men of God like Timothy. However, that doesn't mean that this only applies in the case of, of those who are in positions of Christian leadership in the church. Christian ministers like Timothy are in view in particular, but the scriptures, if the, if the scriptures are sufficient to equip ministers, to the, equip those who are called to shepherd the flock of God, if the scriptures are sufficient to equip them for every good work, then certainly we, they are sufficient to equip all other believers as well. But this raises the question, okay, so, Pastor, the scriptures are sufficient to equip the man of God, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work, and by inference that uh, that applies to all believers, the scriptures are, are sufficient for all of us in our particular callings and vocations. But the question is, uh, what about these other uh, authorities? Well, you know, we're a, an Orthodox Presbyterian church. We have a catechism. We have creeds and confessions. Uh, we, uh, we believe in in ministers and, and assemblies of the church. Uh, does sola scriptura, scripture alone, mean that we can ignore all that other stuff? That that other stuff is, is not significant or important? Well, it's important to understand, friends, that the Apostle Paul in this passage is not advocating, and historic Protestantism has never advocated, an unbiblical hyper-individualism such as the solo scriptura distortion of the Protestant view, which completely rejects the historic creeds and confessions and councils of the church and which advocates a completely isolated, just me and my Bible in my prayer closet mindset, which reads scripture in isolation from the historic church. Let me just say, in many uh, today, in many Christians' minds, uh, the idea of Scripture alone is often misinterpreted to mean, oh, the Bible alone, this alone is the Word of God, which is true. This, is, this alone is the only infallible rule for faith and practice. Yes, that's true. Well, that means I don't need the church. That means I don't need uh, teachers and pastors and theologians. And that means that I can just, you know, it's me and my Bible and the Holy Spirit in my prayer closet. That's all I need. You know, that's not what... Sola Scriptura means. We need to understand, brothers and sisters, that Paul is not denying the existence of other God-ordained but subordinate or secondary authorities like the organized church and its ordained ministers and elders. However, because the Bible is God-breathed, it alone is infallible and ultimate in its authority. It is the only infallible rule of faith and practice. Bible-based creeds and confessions and uh, church councils that uh, are faithful to the Scriptures, lawfully ordained church officers, these are fallible and subordinate authorities, but real authorities nonetheless, but but they are fallible and subordinate. Uh, They are subject to the correction and guidance of Holy Scripture, and thus they are authoritative only insofar as they conform to the teachings of God's Word. And so the scriptures come from God. The scriptures are spiritually profitable and the scriptures are sufficient. Therefore, sola scriptura, scripture alone, the Protestant, the correct understanding of, of the Protestant view, not 
unbiblical, hyper-individualistic solo scriptura, but sola scriptura is supported by the word of God, contrary to what some of our Roman Catholic friends would contend. But I would have us closed by considering, too, with regards to these secondary authorities that I've mentioned, I'd have you turn to the back of your Psalter hymnal to our, uh, our confession of faith, the back of this uh, Trinity Psalter hymnal. Look at Confession of Faith, chapter 31, sections uh, three, 3 and 2. We're going to read them in that order. Confession of Faith, chapter 31. This is uh, page 938 in the back of your Psalter hymnal. This is the chapter of synods and councils. Let me first of all read section 3. Section 3 says this. All synods or councils since the apostles' times, whether general, general or particular, may err, and many have erred. Therefore, they are not to be made the rule of faith or practice, but to be used as a help in both. You see the distinction? They are aids and helps to faith and practice, but they are not the rule of faith and practice because as Luther discovered uh, in the Protestant Reformation, as Luther discovered, synods and councils did err at times. And they are not to be made, therefore, a rule for faith and practice. But going back to uh, section 2, we read this. What is the purpose of those synods and councils? And we just had an assembly uh, in the last two days here at Grace Church, a presbytery assembly. It says, It belongeth to synods and councils ministerially, which means in a servant role, to minister is to serve. It belongeth to synods and councils ministerially to determine controversies of faith and cases of conscience, to set down rules and directions for the better ordering of the public worship of God and government of his church to receive complaints in cases of maladministration and authoritatively to determine the same, which decrees and determinations, notice this phrase, if consonant to the word of God, are to be received with reverence and submission, not only for their agreement with the word, but also for the power whereby they are made as being an ordinance of God appointed thereunto in his word. The Bible itself teaches us that God has given a government and officers to his church. So you can't hold to solo scriptura and ignore the church while at the same time saying that I just follow the Bible. Well, the Bible itself talks about elders and deacons and a church structure and councils and things of that sort. And so, friends, again, the Bible and the Bible alone is the word of God. The Bible and the Bible alone is the only infallible rule for faith and practice. And that's why the Bible can be studied corporately and collectively by the church of Jesus Christ. And that's why we can learn from past ages of faithful uh, ministers and elders and, and theologians that God has raised up to study the scriptures and to help lead the people of God to a deeper understanding of his word. May we, brothers and sisters, may we ground our faith in scripture May we live in the scriptures, both as individual believers and as a covenant community. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for this precious gift, the word of God, the holy scriptures. We would pray, Heavenly Father, that you would help us, Lord, to trust in your word, to hunger and thirst to know your word, 
and to be grounded in the Scriptures. And we pray that by Your Spirit, that Your Word would bear much spiritual fruit in our hearts and lives and in this congregation of Your people. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, Amen. Let's close our time of worship today by rising and we'll sing as our closing hymn, 171, O Word of God Incarnate, 171.